Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify their candidate pool? Then come check out our job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, AARP is looking for an associate art director in Washington, D.C. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll help spread the word for you throughout our podcast. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. I'm Maurice Cherry, and we are back for 2020. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Before we get started, I have to say, it it feels good to be back here. It it just really feels good. Uh, As you probably have heard earlier in the show, our job board is back. So if you're looking for work for 2020 or you're hiring and you're struggling on diversifying your candidates, hit us up at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Oh, if you're following us on Twitter, then you know we kind of had a couple of announcements that went out at the beginning of the year. Uh, We went through a little brand refresh for 2020. We got a new logo, a little bit of a a refined design, all of that, you know. Also, 28 Days of the Web is coming back this year in February with 29 new honorees. That means we're throwing in one extra for Leap Day, of course. And finally, recognize the design anthology of essays and commentary from indigenous people and people of color is back for volume two this year. This year's theme is Fresh. And submissions are going to be open on March 1st. For more details on that, you can go to recognize.design. There will be links to all of this in the show notes. Now let's talk about our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract. Design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. All right, now let's get into this interview. My guest this week is Anthony Harrison, Senior Director of Graphic Design and Identity at Adidas in Bavaria, Germany. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Anthony Harrison, and I am a Creative Director. Mostly would describe myself as an art director, but I think that you know definition has expanded, so I'll go with creative director. And now you're currently working at Adidas, is that right? That's right. I'm a senior uh, director of graphic design and identity for Adidas, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what kind of work you do in that capacity? Yeah, so my team um, on the on the identity part, that's you know that's the, the the root of what we do. I'm in the brand design department, and what we do is we come up with 
the full-on graphic expression for any innovation or initiative that the brand is undertaking. So, you know, if there's a, a new technology that comes out, we do the work, we come up with the logo. So we meet with the scientists, we, you know, we look at the process, we, we follow how it goes. And then from there, we create a word mark, but then the fully graphic expression. So, you know, a lot of these are uh, treatments that they'll give to like an outsole or an inner layer of a piece of footwear. So we'll actually look at what those aesthetics are and build a graphic language from it. And also around all of those word marks, we create an animation. So it's really building little brands inside of the brand, you know, mm -hmm. for different technologies and innovations, which is really super interesting because, you know, our job is to make the the intangible tangible right how do you take a sports innovation and make it something tangible for the average consumer you know so that's a big big part of the challenge and the other side obviously is you know overseeing um, graphic design throughout the company you know for um you know apparel footwear communication equipment you know we also do all of the you know brand management as well in terms of guidelines and that sort of thing so we're a pretty pretty nimble team um part of us sit here in germany and uh, the other half sit in uh, our Portland, Oregon office, and we uh, back things back and forth. So we are truly a global operation. Wow. And yeah. I mean, Adidas is such an iconic brand. I can only imagine just the amount of, I don't know, I feel like that's a big, heavy lift for something that is so well-known worldwide in terms of identity, because there's so many ways that you could take, I mean, the simple three-stripe logo, there's a lot yeah. of ways that you can interpret that. There's a lot of ways you can play around with that exactly welcome to my world <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's part of it you know i think that's the big thing for me too like just speaking frankly it's the, the first logo i drew as a boy was the was the trifoil logo you know the, the, the three leaves really not even realizing at the time that it was three leaves but that's one of the first logos i drew along with the nottingham forest kit because adidas made the nottingham forest kit at the time that my dad bought me so for me it's like you know, just a relationship with the brand like that is kind of coming home. And again, it's a 70 year old brand, yeah. you know, started in 1949 right here. So it's really kind of an honor to be recruited to such a, a prestigious brand with a, with a rich history and be entrusted with kind of carrying that legacy forward. You know, how has your role changed since you first started at Adidas? Mm. Well, when I first got in, I was in uh, creative direction. So, it, you know, the identity part wasn't part of it. I came in under product, really. So I worked with the, you know, the SVP of design and the VP of design to kind of oversee a product across the brand. And, you know, we're set up a lot like, a, like other large sport brands where we're broken up by a sport, right? So each sport kind of creates its own product specialized to that sport. And we oversee all of the graphic design that goes throughout those. My job is to build that graphic umbrella and we work, product-wise, we work about two years out. So currently, we're working on fall, winter 21. Wow. Got to be able to, yeah, so you've got to be able to kind of forecast where you see the world going, looking at trends, but not following them. And then, you know, but at the same time, balancing that out with staying true to the culture of the actual brand. It's really about looking out. And I mean, this is, that's the most fun part for me was, you know, the fact that the role sits at the sweet spot of culture in between sport, music, art, film, food, travel, you know, it's right in the center of that. And that's where all of that art is created from. So when I first came in, that was specifically my role. And although it was a large role, I think for myself, it, it got to be a bit, I'm very fidgety, like most art directors and graphic designers in general. So I needed more, 
you know, and in my spare time, I do a lot of kind of brandalism in my Instagram and my boss saw it and said, Hey, you know, you have like a passion for like logos and stuff. What do you, how do you feel about taking over this other team? I thought, yeah, awesome. Cause there were some people in that other team that I really wanted to work with. And it's just been, it's been great. So I've been doing this role now for about a year and a half and with a really great team. My team are just, um, just the warmest group of people that I've probably ever worked with. And we're, you know, again, we sit here in Germany, but we're two Brits, two Argentines, one Portuguese, um, you know, two Germans. It's a nice, diverse group. And, you know, we just basically talk football, sports banter all day as we work. So how do you approach new projects, given that, one, the just sort of iconic stature of the brand and the logo and the fact that it sits at so many cultural intersections, like you're two years out. I'm just curious how you even concept for that amount of time and how you approach new projects. Oh man, that's the, that's the fun part. I think for myself, it's crazy, man. Like I, I gave a, gave a presentation a couple of weeks ago and I had to kind of look back at my career and, and think about, you know, how I do what I do and why I do what I do. And, and, and something came to light when you talk about how do you create new projects? I think it comes from never turning off, hmm. you know, as a graphic designer, I saw someone, I cannot remember what doc I was watching, but someone was saying that they were describing the laundromat down the street with the really bad letter spacing, right? That's kind of how we see the world. It's just part of never turning off. So I think the way that I always approach new projects, and if you're thinking about like two years out, how do you forecast naturally drawn to socio-political, the arts and how it's all connected, those are the things that I'm naturally interested in, in my spare time. So I just pour all of that into the work. And also we have a brilliant team of cultural trends and insights people, one of whom is, is my colleague, Liz Callow. You know, upon coming into the brand, she and I got really, really close. And it's, she's just all about insights, you know? And my thing, again, our job in graphic design is, is communication, right? Rather than decoration and embellishment. So what are we actually saying? So what I get from her and from her team is, what are youth saying, right? Our muse is a 17-year-old athlete, global. So what does their world look like? I love being able to look into this new world and juxtapose it against my own experience and just talk to as many people as I can, listen to as much as I can, and imagine a world in the future. What does graphic, tie graphic design to that? What does graphic expression look like? Just so we're not stabbing in the dark and we're making culturally relevant, resonant graphic communication. Wow. I hope that answers the question. No, it does. I mean, and I can <laughs> only imagine how much research you have to do because it's not just in the realm of athleticism. Like you say, you're looking at sociopolitical issues, at art and probably mm -hmm. music and even other fashion, you know, or apparel brands. Like there's a lot that you have to take in and yeah. sort of sift out what you think yep. might yep. be relevant <laughs> two, yeah. two well, years from now. It just, it just feels yeah. like that's a, that's such a big, it's a lot to think about. <laughs> it is, but you, but you know, but, but you never turn off. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think not everybody has such a, an easy time letting go of their heyday and understanding, you know, I, I hear a lot of people my age, like, you know, lambast the young ones to say, that's not hip hop. What do you know about hip hop? And, you know, and well, that's not punk. You know, in my day, we used mm -hmm. to, and like, all well, that's irrelevant. I love to like, listen to what the young ones are saying because my music pissed my dad off. Right. And it's, and, and that's their job. So it's our job to kind of get over this hump and just accept the new things that are happening and create for that, you know? Yeah. So before Adidas, you were kind of doing your own thing as a design consultant. 
yeah. and an art director. Tell me what that time was like, because I recently, well, two years ago or so, I was doing my own thing kind of as a studio and then went into kind of a full-time job. So tell me about kind of what that transition was like for you. Well, here's the thing. So after I left uh, the music industry, I went into, into you know, apparel and worked at a few streetwear brands and hopped around here and there. And that's when I decided to do my own thing around 2006, 2007. And that was great. For me, it was really about, it's, I'm very entrepreneurial uh, mind, entrepreneurially uh, minded with Jamaican parents, 10 jobs. And that's kind of the root of it. Always wanting to do my own thing and, and, and understand, you know, before I was even had a chance to graduate, I had a job, right? I was in the industry working. And once I realized that, that it was a, a living, breathing industry and that I was part of something bigger, right? This, this, this ongoing conversation of graphic design, it gave me a little bit of confidence to go out there and just do all of these, use my fidgety nature to my benefit and be able to do all of these projects for all these things. So I was working on movie posters, branding, product design, graphic design, t-shirts, posters, and copywriting as well and caricatures and that sort of thing but it was the most fun time i just wake up you know we lived in harlem at the time so i would just on uh, on 8th avenue sorry 7th avenue and 138th street and i'd wake up play with my cat and just work you know and i'm, I'm, an, I'm a bit of an early bird so i'd be up every morning just cranking stuff out and it was great because i, didn't, I was in no meetings no summits no mm-hmm. you know no meetings about meetings it was just a bit it was pure work and that's when uh, Nike came into the picture and they were my pretty much my biggest client from that point. And I got a chance to do some really kind of fulfilling work with those guys at that time too. So, uh, but yeah, doing my own thing. And then, you know, I went in-house there, came and I left in around 2015, moved back to New York. And, and then again, was just bouncing around doing my own thing and, you know, freelancing here and there, which is when Adidas came calling. And within a couple of months, we were here in Southern Germany. Was it a big shift? Well, I mean, granted, I'm sure it was a big shift just geographically from New York to Germany, but going from that sort of freewheeling entrepreneurial yeah. kind of yeah. thing to now being part of a regimented sort of nine yeah. to five corporate structure, how did you adjust to that? I was ready, you know, because I think, and I, I speak to a lot of people who, who do freelance and have their own little shops. And after a couple of years, you can get cabin fever. The pain in the ass of dealing with a bunch of different creatives and marketing and, you know, in meetings, you're a bit more numb to it. You're like, you know, I'll deal with that because it's all give and take. Yeah. Right. Because on the on the corporate side, you have the obvious to deal with. But then on the solo side, I mean, your time is basically split up in three sections, right? Chasing new business, doing the work and then chasing payment for the work that you've already done. So you're never really turning off, you know, and it is a benefit that you're you know, you have your destiny in your hands. However, with the corporate side, where, you know, where, where it's a gig, you know, it's kind of give and take. You know, you have your good days, you have your bad days, but then you have that, you know, security that you have there as well. So that, that was the big difference for me. It can be a trade-off. I remember when I stopped doing my studio, I did my studio for, for nine years, and then I started at the place where I'm currently at, at Glitch. And it was interesting how from, some of it was from my peers, but I think also it was just some folks here in the Atlanta design community who thought that I sort of failed in a way. It's uh, like, oh, you were doing yeah. your own thing because yeah. there's the there's the whole culture around we sleep, they grind, hustle hard. You know, if you're yeah. doing your own thing, you're your own boss. And now, 
Now you're back at the plantation, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where that comes from, but that's that's romanticism, man. There's something to be said for being part of something. You know what I mean? And it's all give and take. It's the same thing at the end of the day. Whatever you're doing is going towards something. Being your own boss is great, but it's not as easy as you know as one would like. I mean, if I think about New York, the amount of tax that you pay, you're really you know discouraged Ooh. from doing that. You know what I mean? You, you really can't get a foothold. I know someone, I met someone the other day who's moving to Ghent, you know, to start his studio because he loves it, right? He's, he's from London, but he's just like, hey, listen, man, Belgium's got a nice little city and it's a bit remote, but like I can do what I do and they have a creative community. I'm going there, you yeah. know? So, yeah. You've already touched on like a few things that I want to dive more into. You briefly mentioned music career. You briefly mentioned Nike. So I want to talk about those things, but first I want to just kind of, Go back because I, of course, we said this before you recorded. I'm picking up on the British accent. You mentioned yep. sort of bouncing around. Talk to me about where you grew up. So I grew up in, I was born in 71 in a place called Edmonton, about 40 minutes outside of uh, the city. In, it's North London. It's just up from Tottenham in 71. And uh, yeah, you know, my dad was an engineer. My mom's a clerk, a younger sister, an older brother. Just grew up playing football. Football was like my life. I was telling them, telling people the other day that I had three loves. It was drawing, football, and drawing football. So if I wasn't, you know, playing it, I was watching it. If I wasn't watching it, I was drawing it. It was like it was, I, you know, it was my religion, mm-hmm. and that's what kind of took up all my time. It was a really progressive time for kids. Late seventies, early eighties was a really progressive time for kids in England, and there were just countless television series that were saying that, you know, you can do anything you want with a little bit of effort. You can be whoever you want to be. That was what they told us as kids. And, you know, at that time, there were a lot of like people in their late twenties who were punks that were writing all of these kids for uh, all these uh, books for children and making all these television series for children. And there was one in particular called Fungus the Bogeyman. They've since then made a live action version of it. But the original one was about this fictional family of ghouls that lived under the city in grime and you know and they would eat disgusting things and like and and things rhymed and it was completely disgusting and i discovered this around the age of like eight and nine and me and my friends absolutely loved it but it was what it was that was the thing that really taught me about form and content you Mm -hmm. know because this world that they lived in the way that it was illustrated was messy and dirty and grimy and i was like wow okay this is how they get the you know how they get that world across is that it looks like what it is so very subtly it was kind of teaching me those things so um, it sounds like you sort of got exposed to you know design kind of early on in that way very early on very early on i i like to say my career started at age six because you know my parents i think with my dad particularly i mean i was just always in front of the television but with my dad he and i just really bonded around words you know if i'd say hey dad what does this word mean it's a well look it up and you come and tell me so from then even to this day we still like call each other with hey i heard this word the other day that kind of thing so that's what kind of introduced me to the language that we use and i was always watching television commercials i loved the supermarket it was my favorite place to go just to look at all of the packaging and like again before you even know what logos or packaging or branding is uh, or are you're just immersed in it. So mm-hmm. it's just naturally where I went. But I think the thing that really drove it home for me was football because around that time, like 1980, 1981 is when 
not only names on the back of the jersey, names weren't on the back of jerseys yet, it was only a number, but on the front there were sponsors. Mm-hmm. And in Britain, there was a natural reticence to brand things, right? So there was a real big pushback to sponsors on jerseys. But in 1981, 82 is when it just kind of exploded. And that's when you started seeing logos, not just on the sideboard of the pitch, but on the jerseys across the stomach, you know? And they were these really like super intricate logos and Panasonic, Candy, JVC. And I think that's what, boom, that was it for me. When did you first know that, I guess, design was something that you could do for a living? Oh, man. Let me think about that. Because, you know, in high school, um, I went to high school in Yonkers, Yonkers, New York, which is where like the Locks and Mary J. Blige and DMX were from. I went to high school with both of those guys. Wow. But um, around that time, I had a guidance counselor, you know, and I was in the art program at school. Again, around that time, 1988, 1987, everything else that happened in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s happened in Yonkers in the 80s. So uh, the government kind of stepped in and said, look, your school system is completely segregated. And we're going to have to mix it up. So they basically created magnet schools. Same thing they've done around the country where each school would have a different vocation and you would get college credits for attending each school. And this is how they were able to integrate the schools. However, that first year was pretty, <laughs> pretty tough. You know, the signs with, uh, you know, go home and all the rest of it, we had to kind of endure. But, you know, by 12th grade, that had all kind of calmed down. And I had a guidance counselor that basically said, and again, that magnet school was around fine art. So I'd taken fine art AP classes all through. My guidance counselor said, hey, there's no money in art, so you want to go into architecture. I'm like, all right, fine. So my first year in university, I'm in architecture, and I just absolutely despised it. It was the worst. It's like, I don't care about foundations and sedimentary rock. I don't care. I want to draw. So I transferred over to the graphic design department, which at the time was called commercial art. I thought, ugh, it just made me cringe, you know? But you know, gradually it became uh, graphic design, but like that was it. As soon as I moved into that department, it just opened up a completely new world. And I started learning about Paul Rand, Paula Cher, George Lois, you know, and other you know, luminaries in the field, following like a young Stefan Sagmeister and really understanding what an art movement was and, and, and the importance of graphic design and art to you know, society. That's when I really found it out. But I think the graphic design bug really hit me during my first internship. I was interning at Jive Records. At the time that they were doing Midnight Marauders, a tribe called Quest. Oh, and the yeah. artist there was a guy named Nick Gamma. And just watching him work in Photoshop, I think it was Photoshop 2. No layers. <laughs> and no layers? Un- yeah, no layers and one undo. Woo! Right? You want, to, like, you want to save some copies? You better save 10 versions of the file on your oh, desktop. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those were the days. Those were the days. Yeah, when I saw this dude working in Photoshop and Illustrator, I was like, oh, my God, that was it. That was it for me. And that's when I knew. I was like, okay, this is what I want to do all day, every day, you know. And then my second internship right after that was at the Source magazine. And working with Chimo Du and Chris, the art director there, was just another just massive learning. Just being, you know, sitting in the office and Tupac walks by. And, you know, it's just just one of those experiences, Wow. So you really got to be there at this really, you at this like really pivotal point of design and music and culture. Wow. I, I can't imagine just how, how dope that must have been. Yeah, it was great, man. I mean, there was another guy who's ahead of me. He's like, again, iconic, um, Say Adams. He worked at the drawing board. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and just again, being a black dude, you know, you, you want to see yourself represented. And he was an elder. 
him and another guy, uh, Evan Heath, was the art director at Triple uh, Five Soul. These dudes were just insane graphic designers, and it just pushed me to do the best that I could, you know? Yeah. I remember being exposed to those brands and things really through through magazines. I mean, I grew up in rural Alabama, so we had nothing. Like, <laughs> right. no no mall, no movie theater. Yeah. I mean, we had television, but didn't have cable. So, right. like... The the things that we were exposed to were extremely limited, and I just remember kind of living out my fantasies through magazines. There were so sure. many yep. magazines. I mean, The Source, Vibe. I mean, there were like kids' magazines, like Zillion, Sports Illustrated stuff, but there were even like black magazines like YSB, Emerge, Ebony, of course, Jet. And like these were things that kind of expanded my horizons as to like, oh, there are all of these possibilities out there and there are people that look like this that don't look like the people in my town you know like it just yeah yeah, yeah. And, and to be at, at a place where you're really documenting and controlling that and portraying it wow i just that just seems like such a pivotal time to really be a designer it really was man and you know what's what the, the crazy part about it the thing that it taught me and looking back because again you know I think we're past the romantic era, right? Where people in my, of my generation and the people a little bit older than me are telling the youngest like, yeah, we did this and kind of making myths about themselves because we didn't know what we were doing, mm -hmm. right? Like we were just doing it because it was cool and we enjoyed it. Then it became something that was like, you know, that gained like a larger cultural footprint. But I do feel really fortunate to have been there at a time when you could basically take your portfolio and just go knock on the door of a brand and talk to a creative person and you don't get routed through HR. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, <laughs> it was a really, really fortunate time. And I remember it was super pivotal because, you know, when I got hired as a junior designer at uh, Arista Records, within a year, our entire mechanical room was gone. You know, we had a full staff of mechanical artists who basically put albums to, to cut together the old way with, you know, the acetate and the burnished type, you know, the Xerox machine and the, the non-repro blue pencil, like, and the stack machine, like I used all of that stuff very early on and I feel fortunate to have learned it the analog way. And then within a year, everyone had a Mac. And even though we had one undo in Illustrator, it was still Illustrator. <laughs> <laughs> so talk more about that time at Arista Records because you were there for like about seven years, right? What yeah, do you remember? Yeah. What do you remember from that uh, time? Oh man, it was great. It was so, oh man, it was bugged out. So just in how I got the job, again, man, it was, it was such a time. I find design now is quite tribal and kind of insular in the big places. And it's just kind of, you know, groups of people who know each other and networks of, you know, it can be that way. And I, I think the youngins are opening that up a little bit. But back then, when I was looking for my first full-time job, um, after having two internships and my school not really having that many connections, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this myself. So I gathered all of my albums and, you know, went to the back of it, you know, on the back, usually there was like, you know, the copyright line would give you the address. And sometimes it had the phone number, but if not, then I would have to go to this thing called the phone book <laughs> and look up the phone numbers and stuff. So I remember I had a list of like maybe 28 companies. And I remember getting all the way to the bottom, calling each one and saying, my name's Anthony Harrison. I'm a graphic design student. I just want some experience paying or not paying fine. I just want the experience. Mm -hmm. And most people were really encouraging and, and polite. So I remember getting to the bottom and there were three left and Arista was one of the three. I thought, all right, well, I may as well continue. And I called Arista and, you know, and basically the art director there at the time, this woman, Susan Mendola said, Hey, you know, we're looking for a junior designer because we've just signed a bunch of subsidiary labels. Why don't you come in? 
Now, at the time when she said that and I was walking into the office, I didn't know that those labels were Bad Boy, Rowdy, and uh, LaFace. So when I got there, I was like, oh, okay, cool. And it was really funny because, you know, I got the usual thing that I get at job interviews where, you know, you call over the phone. This happens when I'm looking for an apartment sometimes as well. Like, <laughs> you, know, you call over the phone and you open the door and they're like, oh, Mr. Harrison. And it was like, yeah, is the job still open? But, you know, the, the great thing about that experience was that that wasn't the case. You know, she was basically like, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I said was like, look, I know you've signed these labels, but I don't want to get pigeonholed into doing all the R&B and hip hop. I want to do everything because I'm into everything. And they were like, all right, cool. So as a junior designer, man, it was just like, it was like the karate kid. You know, I got to learn in the trenches under like some really great designers. I had a boss named uh, Angela Scoris, and she was an art director formerly from Rolling Stone. So she'd done just iconic work. I learned so much from her about typography and composition. And, and uh, Mark Burdett was another one of my bosses. He came over from Sony. Those times when you're stuck on something and you go to your boss and you say, hey, I'm stuck here, and they don't give you the answer, they show you the path to the answer. Mm-hmm. You get what I mean? It's that kind of give a man a fishing rod, give him a fish, you know, whatever the analogy is, teach him how to fish or give him a fish kind of thing. So being there as a junior designer, I got to work on Annie Lennox, Kenny G, really kind of you know high profile, Patti Smith, stuff like that. And then when I became an art director, I was able to work on Whitney Houston, Waiting to Exhale. Monica and Brandy, some Monica's solo stuff, Goody Mob, my colleague in the office next to me did all the Outcast stuff. So we were working on Goody Mob and Outcast at the same time. Wow. He also did a lot of the TLC stuff. So all this stuff, basically for the seven years that I was there, Arista was the top grossing label in the industry. And it was just this building on uh, West 57th Street, like right around the corner from Trump Tower. So it was 7 West 57th Street, right on the corner of 5th Avenue and 57th Street. So I would drive into the city every day down the west side, park by the river, and walk through this mass of people every morning just to get to work. But it was seven like fantastic years of really learning. Back in those days when you were an art director, you were a proper art director. You did everything. Yeah. And I was really fortunate to be there at that time, you know, and I was twenty-three and I thought, you know, I'm a junior designer, and by the time I'm twenty-nine, I want to be a you know, an art director. So I'm gonna work my ass off to get there. And then the next year they promoted me to art director. So it was one of those, all right, now what, uh, situations. Um, yeah, you but, were so young <laughs> doing yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. working for such iconic artists like that. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. And, you, you know, you're in the elevator and, like, Freddie Smith, uh, Freddie Jackson gets in. And you're like, okay, you know, <laughs> LA and Babyface just walk by. Like, yeah, at an early age, you know. Wow, wow. And, like, I know that, so that was, that was like, early 90s and when this, this went on, right? Yeah, 93, 93. I got 93. Yeah, so this was after... Like the big Millie Vanilli scandal with Aaron. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the record industry was still reeling from that, but you know they was they've been getting away with murder for years, so <laughs> you know, they got over that really quickly. Now, aside from just you know being a designer in the music industry, you were also a recording artist. Yes, yes. So again, as a football was my religion as a boy, track and field. I loved track and field, and sports was my life. And moving to New York, it just just wasn't available. You know, it was the, the last thing on my mind with sports. It was really kind of adapting to this new place and fighting every day because, you know, I think it was a myth. You know, people have watched a lot of Benny Hill and they thought, oh, we're going to pick on the English boy because they'd watched a lot of like, you know, Oliver Twist. They had no idea that we used to fight in London more than them. So <laughs> a couple of those, you know, you kind of set the record straight. Part of, you know, my survival tactic was to really immerse myself in music. And around that time, 
you know, I hated rap because I was just like, at the time it was like uh, Sugar Hill Gang and Furious Five and all that stuff. And I, the first time I'd heard that was when all these like English pop groups were kind of taking it off. So Adam and the Ants was one of my favorite bands mm-hmm. and they did like ant rap. And I was like, that's what I associated with. But by 1985, I heard Suck MC by uh, uh, Run DMC. Mm-hmm. And then a little bit after that, Slow and Low by the Beastie Boys. And they were both produced by Rick Rubin. And that for me was like the future. And that's when I started kind of writing, when I heard Slick Rick, like it was just like, okay, this is future music. So that's when I started writing. So that was just always a hobby from, from that time. And then when I was an art director at Aristar, I was still performing at the time at night, just on the underground circuit with Shabam Sadiq, Immortal Technique, IGR, like I'm going to forget all the names, but it was like the New York City underground rap scene, the juggernauts. You know, the company flow guys, all those guys were all part of the, of the New York City underground. And I ended up getting a deal from that. So during the day, I would work for Arista and at night I would record my album for MCA. You know, so I did that for about two years, you know, worked on the album and it was a lot of fun. But I, it came to a point where I had to really decide, what do I want to do? Do I want design or do I want music? And again, when you work at a record label, you understand how the sausage is made. So this whole thing about being a star and being famous and making hits to me was just like, well, 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 I couldn't care less. I wanted to create art. And when I got signed, the first thing they do when they sign you is like, you know, we think you're great. And immediately they want to turn you into something else. Mm. So at that time, it just happened that everyone was a hard rock in hip hop. And they were like, yeah, we want you to make some harder stuff. And I was like, that's not what I do. I make funny stuff. I make political stuff like, and that's just not what I'm going to do. So the choice was really easy. And I decided to just go into music full, I mean, to into art and graphic design full time. I'm really happy as a fan these days yeah. of music. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, is your album like on streaming services? Can people listen to it? It's fun. You know, there's a lot of it on, um, there's a lot of it on YouTube. Um, oh, just okay. most of them, like, you know, the live radio shows. So there was a, an iconic radio show out of New York city out of uh, NYU by Stretch Armstrong and Bobito. They've actually got a documentary about it on Netflix. But I was a guest on there several times with my friends, uh, Breezley Bruin and the Juggernauts, and with Organized Confusion. We were on there together. So on there with my, you know, my, my MC partner at the, at the time, Jay Live. But those, those uh, videos are all over YouTube. They're, they're just audio. But yeah, I held my own. Okay. All yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> so after your time at, at Arista, you worked for Mecca, which is a, a streetwear brand. And yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I rocked Mecca hard <laughs> yeah. around that time, like mostly yeah. thanks to Vibe Magazine. And uh, sure. God, where did I get my Mecca stuff from? We had a store called On Time Fashions. And I mm-hmm. honestly, I believe some of it was probably bootleg, but I wore it anyway. Uh, it was the only place you could you could get it. But you're like, you'd see it in the ad and then it's in the store. And it's like, why would they be shipping to rural Alabama? It doesn't make any sense. Hey, you'd be surprised, dude. You'd be surprised. <laughs> they ship everywhere. Like when we talk to our sales team, our sales team knows about all of the spots across the country. You'd be really surprised, man. They go everywhere. What, mm-hmm. was, it, what was it like shifting from music to apparel in that way? Was that kind of your... Your first yeah. time working in that industry? It was. It was. So a friend of mine, uh, Ali Asha, he ran a brand called Alphanumeric, and the sister brand was uh, Mecca. So the sister brand, Alphanumeric, was you know all skate and snow. and was like super cutting edge, and they were based in San Diego, and Mecca was based in New York. And he's like, hey, I need an art director, so come on in. So this is where, you know, as I mentioned before, as an art director for a record label, you take care of your artists from soup to nuts. So uh-huh. you meet with them, you go to the studio, you develop their logo, you speak with their management, 
you talk about them with their, you know, about about their lyrics and the, the, you know, their work with them. So you're really building them along the way and all the way down to your TV spots, video shoots and the rest of it. So I found being in the apparel industry, I found that, you know, making myself useful pretty easy. So I worked on graphic design for Mecca when I first got in, but then I just started doing all of the ads and a lot of the packaging and then, you know, t-shirt graphics and then kind of copywriting and that sort of thing. So it was fun at the time. And that's actually where I met my wife. So she was an intern uh, at the time uh, in the women's department. And then she would assist me on photo shoots. And we just celebrated our 19th anniversary uh, the other day. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd like to say I took her on full time. <laughs> so, that's an interesting uh, way to put it. Okay. <laughs> but her, um, you know, her fingerprints are all over pretty much everything I do. Yeah. We have that kind of a creative relationship where anything I'm doing, I'm always kind of getting input and she knows me like a book. So kind of serves as a mirror. And now after Mecca, you went and did work for academics. Was it a big shift? It wasn't actually. I'll tell you what was, what was cool about that was that Mecca was, this was the great thing. Like back in those days, and my wife actually tells this story. She was at FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology. And when you would go to see, and, and I'll backtrack a little bit. During my high school years, rap music, you have to understand those same circumstances around busing, right? Mm -hmm. Think about it. This is where rap music came from. You know, we as people of color were shut out of mainstream art and mainstream culture. We weren't wanted at Studio 54, right? Yeah. So we went and created our own thing. So by my high school time, we were still being told as kids, like what you're doing isn't music, right? Like your fashion is not real fashion. So when my wife was at school, she was told by fashion teachers that, you know, this urban thing you're doing isn't real. You guys basically wear what we make for the mainstream. So it's not really real. By the time academics came around, everyone knew it was something. And, you know, it was euphemistically called urban, right? When it was actually streetwear in its prime. But it was really funny to see brands that kind of separated themselves and said, we're not urban, we're streetwear. It was just this silly, silly that's a, mind. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's one using one one uh, euphemism to, to to cover another. Yeah. But um, by the time academics came around, my boss it was it was owned two thirds by the boss, right? Who's a, a black man, Don Juan uh, Harrell from you know Virginia Beach. And uh, when I came in, I came in as um, senior art director, and then was promoted to design manager. But I always had my hands in the work. And I have to say, my time in academics is probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. We were given complete creative control because our boss knew that we knew who we were making things for. Like if we wanted to see who was buying our clothes, we could just go right out front and look at them. And you could see them. You, you, you take the train with them in the morning. Like this is the, like we live amongst who our consumer is. And they're like the next generation. They were younger, younger people than us. So we knew what they wanted. And I think one thing that we were able to do with all of our themes was play these double entendres. So we were able to play mainstream Americana, which is the stuff that we came up on. We came up on Nautica, Polo, and all those kind of Eastern seaboard brands, you know, mm -hmm. and like along with like Head and Prince, all these super preppy brands that weren't made for us that we would wear just because they weren't made for us, you know, <laughs> all this like super preppy tray torn, you know, like those kinds of brands. Yeah. We were able to like juxtapose all of that imagery against street culture. So for example, we would do, you know, we were all into like Americana, right? We all love plaids and denim and work boots. So we did a whole theme around lumberjacks, right? But if you're doing a lumberjack theme for the hood, we called it big paper makers, right? Nice. And we did these caricatures and that. So it was always like, you know, a little chipmunk that says like stack your chips for a rainy day, like stuff like that. 
You know, always being able to speak in these two different languages was just, it was so much fun. And, you know, our boss basically would protect us as a design team. So we basically had about three meetings with sales a year where sales would give us their input. Here's what sold, here's what didn't, here's what we, and and here's why we think this was the case. Mm -hmm. And then for us, we were basically just designing all the time putting the work up on the board, collaborating, working in different teams. We'd have music going all day. And it was like death metal, reggae, salsa, Afrobeat, comedy albums, podcasts, like, yeah, fun, fun stuff. Yeah. So speaking of this double entendre, I'm going to show you a photo. And for people listening, I'll put this photo in the show notes as well so you all can see it. But I'm going to show you this photo. First, I want you to describe the photo to Mm. the audience. And then second, I want you to tell me the story behind this campaign and the feedback. So I want you to look at this photo now. I'm showing it to you. Oh, yes. (laughs) All right. I remember this. So this is, it is a, an attractive young lady with a a lot of like specialized, like ripped up denim and some, like some shortcut denim shorts sitting very neatly with her legs crossed kind of in a fifties pose, looking straight at the viewer. And she's sitting on the lap of a man reading a book who's paying no attention to her, and he's sitting on a pile of about maybe 80 books. It says, uh, academics, genius level products, read books, get brain. So this was a campaign, and I cannot remember what year this was. I think this was 2003. So one of the things that we were always trying to play with academics was subversion. Mm-hmm. And we understood that the audience that we were talking to understands and appreciates the coded language that we use, right? So like, for example, stack your chips like big paper makers yeah um, we had another one that's like classic material and we spelled classic classic with a ck at the end like that stuff to play on sick they understood that right so we thought we're about academics and at the end of the day academics was about learning that's what the brand was about so we thought wouldn't it be great because when you look at so many of these ads they're sh- shamelessly selling sex you yeah. know and when we were looking at culture at the time this at this time Jay-Z was like the biggest hero of all of those young people. And the first thing that you would, if you just grab a kid off the street and you'd be like, why is Hove the greatest MC ever? And they'd be like, because he's smart. And it was the first time that we were looking at like modern hip hop culture and saying like, isn't it cool that it's like, it's cooler and, and more desirable to be smart than it is to be hard, right? And that we've really actually progressed. And that those, you know, the idea of the nerd doesn't really exist anymore right? Not, not like it used to. So that's kind of where this idea came from. Read books, get brain. Like if you read, you get smarter, but also plays on the sexual, the sexual term of it. And we knew that those kids would understand that that was a joke, right? If you read books, you get smarter. And again, it's just coded language for those who know, get it. So what happened was, this was really funny. So when this came out, this was on billboards, it was in ads and it was everywhere. Now, you know that before these things go out to the general public, they have to go through your own attorneys. They have to go through your own marketing department. So we presented this. I presented this to the team and to the brand broader, and everyone knew about it. Towards the end of the run, some reporter from, I think it was the Daily News, had seen the train ad, and someone on her staff had actually told her what get brain meant, right, as a term. <laughs> it's been used in all these songs. So oh. then they come out with this ad that says, like, you know, streetwear company is selling sex to kids. And I was like, these kids are hypersexualized. Like, I don't know, I don't know what world you live in. Like, that's what this is about, right? And it's about leading. So, and again, it's cheeky, but we knew what it was. 
So it was really funny because I got to work that morning and uh, my boss hadn't got there yet. My boss didn't usually get in until around 10 a.m. But all of the, you know, the office suits were there, you know, just like hand wringing about it. And Anthony, do you talk to them about this? I was like, yeah, yeah, I did. Well, we're going to have to have a meeting when Don Juan gets in because uh, you don't talk to the press. And I was like, no, I told him exactly what it was. You guys saw it. So then we start getting calls from Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 7, New York Times, USA Today. Like, they all want to come by for interviews. When my boss got in, my boss was like, what's the problem? This is great. Anthony put on a shirt because <laughs> you're going to do some interviews. In a bit. <laughs> so it was great because I got to meet Carlos Guzman who's like a New York legend journalist, and he was working for the New York Times at the time. I think he was a former um, a Latin king. He may have been. I, I may be off about that. But anyway, he was a big like community activist and journalist, and I met him that day, and it was, it was such an honor. But uh, for that all to come through this ad was actually really, really funny. And I got so many phone calls for this. I also got a few death, death threats for this as well. What? Um, someone called me. Yeah, someone called me on my office phone and said uh, that I'd set black people back, and I was just like, "Are you, are you out of your mind?" What from a clothing uh, yeah, yeah. ad? Again, you, you think about what year this was, and think about where we are now. Like wow. back then, all this whole furor around being knee-jerk reactions and having something to be offended by was just yeah. starting. But yeah, it uh, it turned out to be a lovely piece of subversion for me. Now, would I do this today? Probably not, because this is not the climate for it. You know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but at the time, yeah, wow. good. that is wild. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one thing it speaks to, you know, just the power of design, the fact that something that was so, you know, kind of cheeky and clearly spoke to the audience of the brand ends yeah. up getting misconstrued in some way. And I think we see that a lot anyway with, with advertising, although it's not as clever as this, you know, it's much <laughs> right. more. I guess I'd use the term ham-fisted in a way. Absolutely. I remember, yeah. I remember yeah. specifically yeah. seeing this. Uh, there was an ad. This I don't know. This may have been like several years ago. But there was an ad for pop chips okay. with uh, Ashton Kutcher in brown face. And yeah. it's like the dumbest yeah. thing. Like it's not clever in any sort of way. It's just a right. really ugly, bad stereotype slash caricature. Yeah. You know. Got it all. Because again, it can quickly go cheap. You know, yeah. and the funny thing is that you'll hear from really poor marketing people sometimes is sex sells. And the fact that people still say that, I'm just like, okay, and more sex sells. So why don't you put <laughs> eight breasts in an ad if that's the case, right? And just put a logo on it. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You know, I'll say too, to that point, there's a lot, you know, I hear this, this debate all the time about, you know, art and commerce, right? And between design and marketing and how there's this natural friction between the two. I don't think, you know, many of those conflicts don't come from the natural conflict. They really come from just poor ideas, yeah. cheap ideas. They come from laziness and apathy. So to that end, like, what do you think is like, if you could distill this down to like a few things, what do you think are like the most important skills that like a designer or a creative person really needs to have in this current climate? Oh, man. I think number one is objectivity. Well, before that, even a hunger. You know, you can't force someone to want to know. Yeah. You've got to have a hunger to know what's current and to join the conversation. Understand that the graphic design and creativity in general, you're, you're not just making something new. You're joining a conversation of something that's probably been approached before. So if you want it to be relevant and to mean something and to actually matter, you've got to know about that conversation. But then secondly, after just kind of curiosity and wanting to do, you've got to understand objectivity. Right. And, and really, I feel like design, graphic design is, a, is an anonymous job. 
if you've really done your job, no one knows you're there, mm -hmm. right? If you're able to kind of compose this thing that communicates something, you know, a lot of it is manipulation, visual manipulation, but you've got to be objective, you know? And I've found a lot of people just lost their jobs or lost sight of what their job is. Like, uh, you know, and I'll, and I'll share this at work, for, for instance, what happens, this happened at a, different, a few different jobs I've had. You'll find people who are more interested in the rules than creating something new. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think this, it's the ultimate lazy thing that people do is revert to the rules. Yeah. You know? Oh my God. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I've definitely been there where like things get so stuck in, in process and rules that it's like, you, you don't even get a chance to make anything. It's the point. It starts at no, you know, yeah. and if you think about your viewing public, they have a wide choice today. So they'll yeah. just go elsewhere. But yeah, I think the most important thing for you to have right now is objectivity complete objectivity, especially in such a changing world and a changing climate, everything is completely new. So you can't apply your old rules to whatever is kind of emerging now and becoming the new, you know? What inspires you these days? Oh man, everything, everything. Like honestly, like those who came before me and those who are coming after me, like I'm able to look back at like old stuff. Like I just, I was watching that Shangri-La documentary the other day the Rick Rubin documentary and someone in there picked up an old album cover and they said that it was a, an album of his from, I believe it may have been as late as late as 68, that he was the first person to use the term hip hop. And wow. it's right there, like on the, on the cover, like stuff like that just blows me away. When I think about, I went the other day to see the, uh, the Kubrick exhibit at the design museum in London. Mm -hmm. Like I could have just hid in the corner and just kind of tried to sleep over, you know, it was one of those. I just felt like a six year old, you know, that stuff just inspires me seeing that like some of these sets that I've seen, like uh, full metal jacket, that Vietnam scene was actually London. Yeah. You know, oh, like, okay. they, yeah, they bombed the barracks and flew in palm trees. Right. But then <laughs> conversely, a lot of the stuff that the youngins are doing now. So like top boy, mm -hmm. you know, that, that series, uh, it's on HBO euphoria. Yeah. is Another one, just the way it's written, you know, cause for me, graphic design is about people. That's it, right? It's about who's on the other end. It's not about the rules. It's not about the, the corporate slogan. It's about connecting with people and making something for people. So I find myself watching a lot of television and film and reading a lot. I read a lot of crime novels as well. Yeah, people is it. Yeah. So when, I, when you look at like your career, you've worked at streetwear brands. You've worked in the music industry. You're you know, currently still like working with apparel, footwear, stuff like that. How would you compare being one of the few black designers in a place like say Nike in the U S mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Portland is a very non yeah. city yeah. with yeah. like being one of the few at Adidas yeah. at in Germany. Yeah. It's weird. It's really weird. You know, what's funny, the move from New York city to Nuremberg, Germany felt closer than the move from New York city to Portland, Oregon. Huh? In what I way? feel, yeah, I feel more welcome in Germany than I do in Portland, Oregon. I'll tell you that much. When you, <laughs> you, know, you know, you walk down the center of the city on a Saturday afternoon and people cross the street, mm -hmm. you know, or you, you, yeah, it's, uh, it's real. It's very real. And I mean, and I've get, you know, most death uh, likens it to the boogeyman being the boogeyman. Like, you know, you go places and people are scared of you, you know, they think you're going to harm them. So, you know, carrying that around. I don't feel any of that here. You know what I mean? I go into stores. No one, people don't bother you. They don't follow you. Police don't mess with me. It's very, very different. Now, in terms, that's the cities. But in terms of inside the organizations, it's the same thing. 
It's the, it's the exact same thing. It's the, the same thing that you come up against, which is, again, which I think for myself where objectivity helps me is I like to kind of look at my experience through the lens of being a woman, you know, and what, what my own biases might be, the things that I grew up with, and how to handle it. And objectivity helps me every time. I'll put it this way. There was an England-Bulgaria match the other day, and England beat Bulgaria 6-0 at their own stadium, right? And there were monkey chants all the way through to the point where they had to stop the match. Wow. Uh, couple of times, right? They had to stop the match because England, in the start in 11, I think England had like six black players and two mm-hmm. biracial, <laughs> something like that. And that's just the way it is, right? So when I was a kid and my dad used to take me to matches, the home fans would boo our black players, right? And then pat me on the head and say to my dad, oh, you've got a lovely little kid there. Oh, you know, isn't he great? You know, how you doing, little man? You all right? You know, and be super friendly. So having that understanding of it, allows me to work in these environments and just you've got to bob and weave you know um, and I put myself out there I'm an individual who speaks up and I'm not sensational about it but I just feel like I have a duty for those who come after me to speak up when I see things no matter what it costs me and I've done it you know so and I don't intend to stop no matter what it costs me now as I was doing my research I saw that this was an interview you did with the hundreds almost 10 years ago, actually. Sure. And you <laughs> talked about that you sort of wanted to try your hand at doing food packaging or writing or illustrating a children's book. Are you still interested in those kind of projects or is there like absolutely. another dream project yeah. you'd like to do? Yeah, absolutely. I think the children's book thing is just something I've always wanted to do. Actually, my first internship before Jive Records was with a children's book illustrator on the Upper West Side uh, named Barbara Roman. So I used to assist her. But that was when, you know, I saw her life. I was like, wow, this is the life get to draw and then go see your publisher and then get in advance. Like I could do this, but just in terms of like what it means to children, that's the thing for me, like the, the, you know, still a dream of mine. I haven't done yet in terms of writing. Like I've been doing a little bit of writing. I've been practicing, you know, design is a little bit different. So, you know, writing fiction is good. I'm, I, you know, I dabble in it here and there, but I think my biggest dream project right now that I'm actually working on is um, brandalism. So on my Instagram, I do a lot of that. So, you know, I like to say that during the day I create logos and in the evening I destroy them. So sometimes they're jokes, sometimes they're, you know, politically motivated, sometimes they're just an opinion on something, but I like to, and sometimes it's just to make myself laugh or make my friends laugh. But every day I post something because I have to make something that isn't briefed. I come home and I make something every night and I post this thing. So what I'm doing is making a book of all of it with a couple of interviews with kind of luminaries from the field, a few people who I admire, who I've worked with over the years, and I'm hoping to put that out by, you know, the new year. At this stage in your in your career, in your life, really, like what does success look like for you? It's funny. It's, it's actually a big question. You know, at my age now, you start looking back and you think like, so I got introduced the other day and when they introduced me, introduced me, they were talking about my work and it was a bit embarrassing. You know, if you're British, pretty much everything is an opportunity to be embarrassed, but <laughs> it was a bit cringeworthy. But then I thought about it and I thought, you know, for me, I, you know, I have an old boss of mine, Katie uh, Tish, who really taught me a lot. I, I owe her a debt of gratitude all through my career. I've just had people who looked out. People were like, you know, once they knew that you were hungry, they were like, hey, come here, let me show you this, you know? Mm-hmm. But what she said was, you know, I feel like I haven't done my best work yet. And that's exactly how I feel. Success for me feels like giving something back, which I'm able to do now. Nothing is more rewarding for me than to sit with my team and have one of them come to me and go, Anthony, look, I've got this thing here that I'm working on, but look at the S. God, I can't get the middle of that S right. Like, what would you do? Being able to just help someone with something as simple as that, for me, is just the most rewarding thing ever. 
you know, and managing teams I never thought would be as rewarding as it is, but it's like driving without your hands on the wheel and it's problem solving. And success for me looks like just enjoying my everyday. You know, I do what I love for a living. You know what I mean? If I could go back and talk to my seven-year-old self and explain my job right now, even on the worst of days, if I could explain that to that kid, he'd be like, yeah, you know, you've done all right. Yeah. So you are our first interview of 2020. We're starting a new year. We're starting a new decade. When you look to like the next five years, what kind of work would you like to be doing? Wow. I think work, no matter what it is, relevant work, number one, that matters, right, to this changing world, something that addresses everything that we're talking about, something that's aesthetically pleasing, obviously, and something that fits into the function. It needs to be functional. It needs to be purposeful. You know, that's my new criteria for what I want to do next. Because as I see design changing, as I see, you know, the nature of work changing, I want to put what I do towards some good. You know, I'd love to work with inner city kids, rural kids who never thought they had a chance to be in graphic design and just kind of give them everything I can to just infiltrate our really kind of monotone industry with some character. Well, Anthony, just to you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything online? I would go to my Instagram, which is uh, Anthony Bones Harrison. So that's my uh, at Anthony Bones Harrison. That's my Instagram and at Anthony Harrison dot solutions. That's my website. It hasn't been updated in some time and it's probably about a 30 second of my work. So that's kind of, you know, my website, but uh, I'm in the midst of uh, rebuilding that so I can put everything on there and making it a little bit more editorial. But where you really want to go is my Instagram, which is at Anthony Bones Harrison. All right. Sounds good. Well, Anthony Harrison, I have to thank you so much for being on the show. Of course, as you know, this has been a long time coming. I really love that this is the interview that we're starting off this year with because something that, you know, has sort of stuck with me from last year has been the notion of like, what are we as designers doing to kind of build a more equitable future? And, you know, the skills that we have are often put towards things which are fairly ephemeral, you know, especially if we're talking right. about digital yeah. design. You know, we put all this work into these things that in a few years are just, they're gone, you know? Yeah. And so I think, you know, what you've been able to do throughout your career is take the skills that you have and you've been able to morph and move them in so many different ways and so many different aspects of design that I think that's something which is, just really inspiring. And hopefully for people that are listening, they can see that, you know, you don't have to pigeonhole your creativity into one specific type of industry that you can take that and really use it in a lot of places. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you for having me. This was great. Big, big thanks to Anthony Harrison. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Anthony and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. And if you want to learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, then please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. 
Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by the legendary Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, let us know, or even better, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You know, a lot of people have asked, like, what they can do to support Revision Path. And, you know, spreading the word about the show by leaving a rating and a review is really the best way to do it. It's also free to do. We even got a really easy way for you to do it. Just go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash revision path, all one word. Tap the Apple podcast link and just go from there. It works best if you're on your desktop or your laptop or an iPhone. Sorry, Android folks, I feel you. Um, but you can leave a review also on Podchaser. We're on podchaser.com. Just search for Revision Path. You know, don't be shy. Let's have a conversation. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.